everybody. This is Stephanie Ruper. Thank you so much for tuning into the Naked Humanity podcast, where we take a deep dive into our big questions and figure out what it means to be human. Today is episode number 52, and I have on Dr. Daryl Cameron, a specialist in empathy, outrage, and other forms of emotional motivation. Empathy, outrage, and other forms of emotional motivation are so important very important, particularly for today's political landscape. I think we need to look really hard at these questions. And also they're deeply important to who we are, to our daily lives, our own personal experiences of empathy. And so Dr. Cameron and I, in this podcast, we talk about limitations to empathy. You know, what is empathy? Are we, when are we good at it? When are we bad at it? Do we need to be better at it? How do we get better at it? And also outrage. We, also, we know, I personally, I talk all of the time about how it is so important to let yourself sometimes be guided by your emotions. They're always a part of decision-making. That's just a fact. So let yourself feel them. But I personally always advocate that you do so with some amount of self-awareness and try not to let these emotions use you, right? You use them for your goals as opposed to being used as much as you can. This is something I have often said. And what I appreciate so much about the discussion that's forthcoming is that Dr. Cameron and I sort of end up talking about our emotional landscapes as ones that are not inherently negative or inherently positive. You're not a great, compassionate person, period. And that's just because you're compassionate, that means that you use your compassion well, right? Our emotional landscapes are there. They're very present. We're human animals who feel things. And it becomes a in question of, okay, how do we make sure that we're using our compassion for the better? How do we make sure we're using our outrage or our anger for the better? And I love this perspective. I love it a lot. And I think it's something that I will be very useful to you and well, theoretically uh, to people listening to this podcast, precisely because it shows us how our emotions work. You know, we talk a lot about how empathy works uh, and also gives us some ideas about how to relate to them. You know, we also talk about mindfulness practices and ways in which those have been studied as unlocking empathy or helping foster it or not, right? It all depends on your context. I think that this is a very liberating and empowering thing in its own way because we have agency. I think a lot of people in the world are sort of afraid of their emotions or the power they have or don't necessarily engage them or look at them or think about them critically because they seem powerful, out of your control, and that whatever. But as it turns out, our emotions are highly context-dependent and highly malleable. You know, we can change or direct our feelings in different ways which is really productive and really helpful for our personal lives. So I'm super excited to share with you the insights of uh, Dr. Daryl Cameron, who I'll read you a little bit about his work. He has a PhD from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. He currently investigates the psychological processes involved in empathy and moral decision-making using an interdisciplinary approach, drawing on effective science, social cognition, and moral philosophy. Much of his research, he examines motivational and situational factors that shape empathic emotions and behaviors towards others. In other research, he uses implicit measurement and mathematical modeling to assess empathy and moral judgment in healthy, clinical, and incarcerated populations. To learn more about his research, you can visit the Empathy and Moral Psychology Lab webpage, which I will link to in the show notes. It's EMP Lab at a Penn State University uh, site. So do check that out in the show notes. Uh, Dr. Cameron is also affiliated with a, a group or an institute called the Rock Ethics Institute. I think this is very important. He specializes, he is an experimental psychologist, but also has a background in philosophy and works a lot in terms on in questions of, okay, not just how do our emotions work, but how do we best use them? So I'm very excited to bring this uh, great chat with you to you today. Without further ado, here is Dr. Daryl Cameron. Hi, Daryl. Hi. Uh, thank you so much for joining me. I have been actually trying to get an expert on uh, empathy and outrage and those two categories onto the podcast since it started. So uh, finally, in episode number 52, uh, I made it. So thank you. 
Well, thank you for the invitation. I'm looking forward to talking about these topics. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, so I've done a little bit of reading about your lab and it sounds really amazing. And you run it, right? You run the research group? Yeah, so I, I run the Empathy and Moral Psychology Lab here at Penn State. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. How long have you been doing that? Uh, so this this is now my fourth year at Penn State as an assistant professor. Uh, I, I run the psychology lab, like I mentioned. I also work with the Rock Ethics Institute, which is this really interesting uh, interdisciplinary center for ethics research that mm-hmm. has folks from a variety of disciplines. And so it's a it's a really wonderfully uh, cross-disciplinary place to, to think about ethics and morality. Uh, before that, I was at the University of Iowa for three years as faculty, and then I did my undergrad, my grad work in at UNC Chapel Hill. Mm. Awesome. How did you get into studying this sort of stuff? Well, actually, uh, my so I was a double major in college, William and Mary, and I, I majored both in psychology and philosophy. Mm. And so I've always found the juxtaposition of those two disciplines very interesting. Um, and when I was an undergrad, I <clears throat> first got my kind of exposure to moral psychology uh, by collaborating with philosophers who were interested in thinking about how we can use empirical sciences like psychology and other fields to inform how we talk about ethics from a philosophical perspective. And in particular, they were, they were interested in this debate that was really quite prominent back in the, like, so the aughts about um, what, what do findings about situational influences in psychology, what do they mean for ethical theories that posit robust character traits that transcend situational differences in contexts? And it was just, at the time, uh, just a fascinating kind of crosstalk. And that kind of inspired me to continue to be interested in moral psychology as, a, as an area of study. Cool. Is... Um... Is it unusual at all for people to sort of be, is it unusual to be in both fields, philosophy and psychology, or, because um, normally it's, it's hard um, to find interdisciplinary, you know? Yeah, um, yeah, it's trying to do interdisciplinary work can be kind of challenging in some ways. Uh, I mean, there, there is commonality. I mean, trying to do rigorous conceptual theoretical grounding of empirical studies is a really important part of I think an important part of the field. And sometimes that means, you know, if I think one of my favorite talks I've, I, I mentioned sometimes, I, I went to give a talk at a philosophy group and um, it was about empathy as a choice. And I spent about half an hour talking about what choice meant and what empathy meant. And I actually really enjoyed that discussion, like the deep conceptual dive into trying to understand, uh, you know, the meanings of the constructs that we're studying. I think there's yeah. actually a lot of room for important overlap there. Um, but then, of course, I mean, the challenge is like trying to talk to different audiences, the different expectations. It's a process of learning how to toggle between and kind of talk different languages sometimes. Yeah, that's great. And I agree with you. Um, these sort of very, very deep dives. So maybe let's let's do that. What is empathy? Oh, my. Uh, okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great question. And it's actually one that is... I think hotly debated. Um, there are a number of papers that exist. Like Dan Batson has a chapter basically outlining, I think it's over a dozen different meanings of the term empathy. Uh, there's also a recent paper that came out uh, by Judith Hall about the term empathy and, and, and how to think about how it kind of captures so many diverse processes. Um, one of the one of the ways of framing it that I often refer revert to when I look in my work is it's kind of a tripartite approach that as you see it and there's a paper by John Deasity and also one by Jinozaki that they, they talk about three different three different components of um, empathy and we often think of empathy as like experience sharing so mm-hmm. resonating with what someone else is feeling if if you're feeling joy, then I empathically catch that joy and feel joy myself. Um, as contrasted with perspective taking, a more cognitive inference about the mental states or feelings of someone else. Uh, and then those two are sometimes called affective and cognitive empathy, uh, are then sometimes further differentiated from compassion. Um, so kind of the generation of a warm feeling of care and concern for someone else that motivates a desire to help. Mm. Um, sometimes 
sometimes also called sympathy by some or empathic concern by others. Um, and I think the term sympathy itself has a number of different interpretations depending upon history and discipline and philosophy and psychology. And so that adds further confusions. Uh, and many of these often go together. I mean, perspective taking is often used as an induction to increase compassion. Um, but you can also think about cases where they, they uh, separate apart. So, you know, I could empathize with someone and understand what they're feeling, but have no desire to help them if they're like an outgroup member that I am in opposition to for some reason. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's, I think, pr probably one of the more straightforward ways of thinking about how psychologists talk about empathy. But there are these deeper debates about, given how much diversity there is in these different facets, and also questions about uh Empathy is like a capacity or skill versus like a propensity that you deploy in a given moment. There are broader concerns about the overarching use of the term empathy without more like qualification. Sure. Uh, so are, do we find these ideas about empathy in popular culture or are there like big distinctions between, you know, how we talk about empathy on a day-to-day -day life and how it's researched by researchers? You know, that's a good question. And I, you know, thinking about the convergence or divergence between lay theories and how academics study it, it's, you know, I, there, there is some work looking at lay theories of empathy and like how you define empathy and how that changes whether you feel empathy. Um, but in terms of colloquial understandings of it, I, you know, I think it's possible that I would speculate there is a rough understanding of what a term like compassion or empathy means. I think the issue comes, especially when contrasting like empathy and compassion, people might have some disagreements about when they say empathy, do they just mean you're feeling what I'm feeling, feeling with, or do they mean like a compassion or a feeling for mm. with actual pro-social intent behind it? And I could see there being some possibility. Maybe some people have a hard time fully disentangling those. You know, whereas psychologists and neuroscientists, maybe they, they, you know, they demarcate those very cleanly, but perhaps in everyday life, they often correlate together and are not as distinct in people's minds. But that's an empirical question, and I think there more work needs to be done to kind of understand that. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay, so we, we tend to, I think, universally across the board, think that empathy is a good thing, right? We want to be empathetic. Uh, is that would you agree that that is a universally true thing? Because we've also had conversations recently. I think there was a book that came out a few years ago that was like, empathy is bad, right? Mm -hmm. So um, is empathy always a good thing, sometimes a good thing? Um, so, yeah, I know the book you're talking about. Um, I've actually, uh, if you mentioned, it's uh, Paul Bloom's book against empathy, which is a really, it's a, it's a great book. It's really interesting and thought-provoking, both scientifically and ethically speaking. Um, I think that there's definitely in the past like seven to nine years been a good degree of challenge about whether empathy is always good. And so I guess I have two responses. One is that you can think about, are there cases where empathy has negative consequences? And so there's the one approach I can go into is just to talk about counterexamples to when empathy appears to be good. But more broadly, and I can loop back to this, is that we can deconstruct that question too. Mm. Like, is in the sense that is any emotion or any psychological process fundamentally good or bad? And how do we think about that question? But I think with the empathy, is empathy good? I mean, of course, like we there's a lot of work in developmental psychology about how empathy can be a useful process to learn that your action has harmed someone else. You can parents use empathy. You know, I use empathy with my kids to try to get them to understand, well, look, this is, can cause harm. This, recognize the suffering that this has caused in something else. And the idea would be that you then learn moral principles through this process of empathy, and you generalize out across cases. But there are counterexamples. Um, I mean, Batson has a study from the mid-90s showing that if you induce compassion for someone, it can interfere with the application of procedural justice. So if you induce compassion for a hypothetical child on a waiting list for a medical procedure, you're more willing to unfairly promote that child to the top of the list, even if they're not the one who is supposed to be getting that procedure. It's roughly speaking what they did. It's been a while since I went to the exact method. But 
Um, and there are other recent examples where it looks like compassion can lead people to preferentially treat others in a way that would seem to go in contradiction to other kinds of uh, principles you might hold. Um, I mean, the argument that is put forward is that empathy is a biased emotion. So the argument you do see sometimes is that empathy can be powerful, it can motivate behavior, and that can be great a lot of the times. We can motivate people to help, to donate, to be cooperative, to trust others. Um, a lot of the things that many of us would think are morally worthwhile to cultivate. But the critics often point to particular biases and empathy that seem to be problematic. So some of my colleagues and I have written about this in the past. Like, so, for example, empathy is very responsive to single identifiable victims, but often less responsive to large-scale crises like genocides, natural disasters, epidemics, and so forth. And empathy is also sometimes uh, less responsive to outgroups and their suffering. And the argument runs in Bloom's book and others, such as the philosopher Jesse Prince, that uh, empathy is a biased, narrow tool. It, and if you're only relying on empathy, it is not sufficient to get you to care about the world's biggest problems or to act in a way that's consistent with principles of fairness and tolerance and equality. And so the argument they run is that um, because for those reasons, because scientifically speaking, because empathy has these limitations, we shouldn't rely upon it from an ethical perspective because it's not sufficient to get us to where we need to go. And what I've written in the past with my colleagues, Mickey Inslick and Will Cunningham, is that that's, it depends upon a particular interpretation of uh, empathy as these biases being set in stone and immutable. Um, and a lot of the work that my lab does uh, focuses on empathy from a motivational perspective. So if you get people to want to feel different things, if you change the motivational landscape of a situation, get them to care about emotional exhaustion or how costly financially empathy might be, you can move around how large these effects are. And so, for example, we have some older work that I did in graduate school that, you know, this compassion collapse of empathy between one and multiple suffering targets that I alluded to earlier, it's stronger when people expect they have to actually do something financially costly on the basis of their empathy. Mm. And so... That's just one example, but there's plenty of additional studies by my group, by other groups, looking at this motivational malleability of empathy. And if that's possible, it throws, in my perspective, um, a wrench into the anti-empathy argument. Because that argument depends upon the assumption that the empathy biases are fixed. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we'd argue that, look, empathy... Sure, it can have positive consequences, it can have negative consequences, but so can anything. So could reasoning, so could compassion, so could perspective taking. Um, and so the deconstruction of the question is, instead of asking whether a process is fundamentally good or bad, which can lead you in some cases to like the anti-empathy conclusion, instead, what are people's values and goals? Does someone, for example have the belief that empathy is not worth cultivating or that it's too exhausting. And if that's the case, maybe empathy gaps reflect those beliefs and those desires. And we're, we're seeing the end product of someone engaging in that kind of strategy uh, to avoid empathy. And it's not empathy itself that's the problem. And so that's, uh, that's, the, that's the argument we've taken in our, some of our work. It's just think about the motivations behind empathy when we consider this question of whether empathy is good or bad. Thank you. Yeah, I, I find that very helpful. I have often found with the argument that empathy is a problem to be a little bit, not to be unfair, but it feels like we're constructing a straw man a little bit, you know, like um, empathy is, is, like you said, clearly no emotion is... 100% good or 100% bad. And we have to try to be smart about everything we do. Um, would you say that the, uh, so you mentioned two biases and I just want to make sure that everybody's clear on what we're talking about. Um, there is the fact that it's hard to be empathetic to like a large abstract number of people, but easier to like identify with 
a single person. And this is why we see things like ads for donating money to something being about one person as opposed to like a bunch, right? That's one. And then the other one is it's harder to be empathetic to people who are different from me, right? It's much, it's easy to be empathetic with my mother, right? Um, a little bit harder for somebody who is far removed from me. Would you say those are the two main biases that we say operating in empathy? Are there others? I think the, those are the ones that are most often talked about. I mean, those are the ones that Bloom highlights and others have written about as well. Um, I mean, in part, I think they're the most talked about in, mainly because of what they suggest about scale. Um, when you're talking about situations of most dire need, and then also considerations of equality and tolerance and conflict. And so I think for, the, for that reason, they're among the most studied biases. Um, and you can think about, I mean, the group, the intergroup empathy gap is often, I mean, you can think of groups in so many different ways that a lot of ethical discussion about empathy and its cultivation can be cast through that lens. So even minimal groupings, political groupings, demographic groupings, international differences across countries. Um, I mean, another one that's sometimes discussed is more clinical variations. So empathy in psychopathic populations, for instance. Um, and even there, there's a bit of work looking at motivational malleability. Um, another one you often hear about is, uh, basically organizational empathy gaps. So profession-based empathy gaps. Uh, one of the most commonly discussed by many folks who study this kind of work is, uh, in healthcare. So where doctors are sometimes described as lower in empathy or higher in empathy, it kind of depends upon what study you're looking at. There's a bit of diversity in the findings. Um, but again, I mean, I would suggest that you know, one, a, a potentially interesting and productive angle for looking at it, um, and again, more work needs to be done for sure. Um, when you see an empathy gap, before, before concluding, it just has to be this way. There's something kind of intrinsic to the to the, the context or to people's capabilities. Try a disconfirmatory approach to testing. So try to see. Well, what if you actually change people's goals and motivations? Can you actually see if the the, the context based difference in uh, empathy moves around a little bit? Sure. Um, yeah. Okay. Cool. So, uh, generally speaking, then you. Um, you may have mentioned, I'm not sure, the idea that empathy is uh, like being empathetic is something that's hard to be. Do we know under circumstances, certain circumstances that could apply to all of us or maybe to some of us based on, you know, the context into which we were born? Like what situations make it easier or harder to experience empathy? That's a great question. Um, and, you know, I think I'll preface this with a caveat that, again, a lot more work needs to be done. And I mean, there's a, there's a great paper by Christian Kaiser's about em empathy as motive, as propensity and capacity. And the idea is that, I mean, surely there are person-based differences and people who differ in like agreeableness as a personality trait, for example, might be predisposed to just on average be more empathetic versus not. But there could be any number of personality-based differences that could be a, fa a function of, of a factor of like environment, upbringing, other factors, but then you can separate that from any given situation. So in a given situation, someone could fail to empathize because they simply lack the capacity or they have the capacity but choose not to. And so they don't have the propensity in that situation to actually empathize. Um, and disentangling those, I think, is a, an ongoing process within the field. We're trying to understand and given contexts, how much can we attribute to motivation and how much is due to some kind of given personality characteristic or person level characteristic. Um, now we have some work that came out this year looking at empathy and how it can be challenging in some cases. So when you, when you present people with depictions of uh, single uh, sad uh, refugees and simply give people the option, do you want to feel empathy or not? I mean, it, it sounds straightforward. It's a very simple free choice approach that, is often used in a variety of animal learning models and also cognitive psychology to look at motivation and preference selection uh, formation. Um, when you give people the choice, they, they on average opt to avoid the, emp the empathy option. And additionally, when you ask them to rate how effortful 
each option felt, they tend to say that empathy felt more cognitively taxing. And so they, they said it felt more effortful, more aversive, it was harder to successfully empathize. And those, pref- those felt cognitive costs in turn were correlated with this avoidance preference. Um, now that's one context. That's with child refugees. We also replicated that effect with depictions of college-age adults posing different facial emotions. Um, but, you know, that's a start, you know, and from that work in this context with these uh, refugees and these uh, college-age adults depicting emotions, people seem to find empathy somewhat challenging. But the immediate complication would be that, of course, that's going to vary. And there are some people for whom the empathy option might seem very easy. Uh, you know, perhaps people who are high in trade empathy, who are more experts at empathizing, would find this to be somewhat easy, easier. And I think what, what next steps would, could be interesting would be to see if we can track how variability in the felt effort of empathy could perhaps explain important individual differences in empathizing and also situation-based differences. It could very well be that it is harder to empathize with, with someone who, with whom you have no connection. Plenty of models of empathy, like the perception, the perception action model, explicitly say this. They say that, um, by Preston and DeWall, they say that with someone you're familiar with, and the idea that empathizing involves this kind of, in a manner of speaking, you're, you're co-activating with, with another person. It's easier to do that if you have a rich set of representations of the other person. You have more information to work with to be able to effectively empathize. But with someone for whom you have little connection or an antagonistic connection, the basis for that is going to be a bit different. Um, and so felt ease, the effort and so forth, those factors could be an important part of intergroup empathy gaps um, or the compassion collapse effect for mass suffering. But we're, we're as a lab, we're continuing to explore that and other labs are as well. When you ask people how hard or easy it is to do they want to feel empathy do you are you very specific with them about what you mean by that because i would imagine that for some people well i would imagine a diversity of interpretations right like we all i think kind of have various ideas of what empathy means and probably in different contexts and so like and also similarly do did you get any sort of quantitative or qualitative data about why like did you just ask why why, why do you not want to empathize? Um, curious. Yeah, we do, we, do, we do assess qualitative open-ended responses sometimes about, like, why do you avoid? And, I mean, anecdotally, people sometimes say uh, they just found it too hard or it was exhausting. Um, but that varies, and we haven't really analyzed that systematically in a deep way. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, you know, I think <clears throat> this way of thinking about it is um, consistent with a lot of work Going back to the mid-90s, uh, there's work on empathy avoidance and the idea that when people decide about whether to empathize, as with any choice, you know, there's a number of costs and benefits they might entertain in making that decision. They could be emotional labor costs, so I don't want to be exhausted, you know, financial material costs, social norms about whether it's okay to empathize with this group or not, or whether empathy is even worth cultivating, which is intriguingly where questions about empathy being good or bad becomes especially interesting because you might think if you're of the moral belief that empathy undermines morality, it could very well create the empathy gaps in question in a kind of interesting loop. Mm -hmm. Um, But if there's any number of possible motivations you might consider that people could entertain as they're making this decision. Um, And so I think part of what the field needs to do moving forward is to better understand these motivations and test them more systematically so I guess the, the short answer to your question is that, you know, we, we look at the post-task ratings of effort, and in terms of individual differences in how people think of what empathy even means, and the ratings are cast in terms of the tasks. So it's they're specified such that, you know, on the, the deck where you were asked to feel what the other person was feeling, how effortful, how aversive, and so forth. And then on the actual task itself, we give people a choice of two options, and then it's for empathy, okay, look at the person try to feel what the person is feeling. This is a very, what we think is a conversationally straightforward way of thinking about experience sharing. Um, and then write about these persons, write about this person's feelings. Um, 
and we have minor task variations where we try to remove the, the writing component or or adapt the instructions to make it really clearly about empathy even more so. And, um, we're also we're, so we have that we're all we are extending this approach to other moral emotions like compassion, blame, outrage, um, and other unpublished work. But um, yeah, that's kind of where it's going. So that, I don't know if that fully addressed your question. Yeah, no, it it absolutely does. Um, I'm just again, I think that there's a lot of subtext there, and that is very helpful. Uh, do you? imagine or do you see that there is some level of feeling of obligation like people don't necessarily want to empathize because if they understand that somebody's situation entails suffering then they're gonna like feel guilty or feel like they have to do something about it sure that's a great question so i mean there are a number of important perspectives in psychology that talk about instrumental emotion regulation the idea that you know, we use emotions to pursue goals. So emotions integrate functionally with thought and, and a way to promote our goals and action in whatever situations we find ourselves in. And so if we think emotions will be instrumental in the future, we'll select for them. Well, if we think empathy could be useful, if we think that empathy could help us achieve some goal, it might very well be the case that we see a preference for rather than an avoidance of empathy. In the studies I was mentioning, um, the paper that came out recently, uh, we tried to explicitly avoid any mention of any kind of future pro-social action because we wanted to try to isolate the cognitive costs of empathy away from any felt financial costs. Um, I mean, it could be that uh, if you lead people to believe, not only will you have the choice to empathize, but we're going to be asked you to do something costly in a pro-social manner later on. It could increase the preference to avoid empathy potentially because you're layering on another possible cost of the empathizing but you could also predict potentially that if people see a reason to empathize that it might if they there could be some maybe people who are higher in baseline trade empathy if they see that okay this empathy can be put to this future purpose after the task maybe you'd see some people choose to upregulate it in a way to build themselves up to the later pro-social action that's a great question. It's something that we, I think, need to examine more, though. I, I get the sense, again, just a vague sense. I, I'm in the field of religion, so I don't necessarily need hard data to make claims. I get the vague sense um, that so many people I know are talking about how exhausting it is to be confronted with bad news all the time and to, you know, sort of, there's a bombardment, I think, in that, that imposes or, I think, tends people to feel some sort of emotional exhaustion. They're wanting to feel like, you know, um, they can be distanced from, from the suffering. So uh, yeah, that's, that's where my curiosity came from. And I think it's linked to this concept of like empathy fatigue, right? Mm -hmm. The idea that like, maybe you can get tired of doing it. So what do you think of the idea of like people becoming overly tired of being empathetic and, or, like, what can we do about it, right? Or I think there are ways to cultivate greater empathetic, empathic resources, right? Yeah. Um, well, yeah, the, the concept of fatigue and resource has been pretty influential in psychology, too. Um, <clears throat> and again, in some of the empathy arguments, there's this metaphor of empathy as something you can run out of. Uh, it's something that is implicit, sometimes more explicit in the arguments against empathy. If empathy is a resource, that would be why you can't feel empathy for it. It's why you can't extend empathy equally across groups, because empathy is some kind of zero-sum limited capacity. Mm -hmm. And in the work that some of the ongoing theoretical work I'm doing with Inzip uh, Cunningham and others, uh, there are different ways of thinking about resource. And some would argue that appealing to a resource is actually kind of, it might not be the best kind of explanation because unless you understand what the nature of the resource is, it can kind of obscure important underlying processes. So one, of, one way of thinking about it could be instead of it being a resource that literally runs out, there's only so much empathy to go around, people could still anticipate feeling exhausted. They could still think, wow, if I, if I empathize 
with this person and get fatigued and tired out. I'm going to have a hard time delegating empathy elsewhere in other situations like You could have that belief, and it could still shape whether you decide to empathize without there actually being a resource. Like you could, you could basically shape your empathic life because you have the belief that empathy is a limited supply, even if there isn't actually a limited supply in the sense that is often attributed. I mean, of course, we can only attend to so many things. We can only focus our attention so many places. And it, you can't help everyone. But I, I, I and others think that it's very, it can be very easy to assume empathy will just run out. Um, but there might be ways to expand and cultivate empathy and grow it in a way that make it more malleable. Sure. Like, like what? <laughs> well, um, there's a number of things that have been discussed. There are more short-term motivational interventions. So simply changing aspects that are perceived in the situation. Um, so if, if someone's worried about emotional exhaustion, change their beliefs. So try to lead them to believe that empathy in a particular context may not have those consequences. Uh, and some of the work that I've done Pain and Masan Harris on dehumanization. We changed people's, we temporarily attempted to change people's beliefs about whether they thought empathy for stigmatized drug addicts would be exhausting enough. And when we did that, it changed people's tendency to dehumanize them, or in this context, that meant uh, lesser attribution of mental states. Uh, you can do short term interventions like that. Uh, there are other studies looking at things like social norms. So Luke, uh, Zaki, and others have a paper where they lead people to believe that others that they care about endorse empathic emotions and behaviors, and that in turn shapes their own tendency to engage in those behaviors. So wait, sorry, do you mean like empathy is cool? So more people try to be empathetic? Okay. <laughs> Essentially. I mean, it's trying to lead you to think that others tend to do empathy. Uh, it's a very simple kind of conform. It's a it's about conformity and kind of norming to those in your peer group and so forth. Um, they also that group also has a paper looking at you know, the belief that empathy is a growable skill as opposed to a fixed capacity can shape how much effort you put into empathic contexts. Um, but there's also long-term interventions too. There's a, a bit of work in uh, contemplative science looking at meditation, various mindfulness programs, uh, trying to not just do short-term fixes, but to try to cultivate deeper skills and propensities that will transcend across situations uh, to affect more long-term growth. Uh, but it's, it's still a work in progress. I mean, there's many different kinds of interventions. I think ideally, you know, the short-term in-lab psychological interventions may or may not affect lasting change. Um, not enough work has been done to fully like look at consequences of those short-term manipulations. Uh, and a lot of the mindfulness interventions, there's a lot of different types of mindfulness and meditation programs more generally, and so there's a lot of debate about what, what, what aspects of those programs work, don't, why. Uh, mm-hmm. um, do you have a sense for like what aspects of those programs people do think is more effective? Like what is, what is the shape of that debate? Um, I think it's, well, I'll say it's a work in progress. Um, I don't consider myself primarily a contemplative scholar. Uh, I think that thinking about, from, from a motivated empathy perspective, uh, one of the key things is trying to cultivate a sustained desire to, to generate compassion. Um, and so to the degree that you can leverage those motivations, to get people to have this impulse to want to care for others and that and have that motivation have that motivation then guide whether they decide to empathize and focusing on cultivating the right attitudes towards empathy and compassion i think is important but also focusing on things like attention so to the degree that you to even empathize and have compassion in the first place you need to attend to the suffering around you and actually have the presence of mind to focus on the needs of others. And I would think those are some of the, the qualities you'd want to cultivate for the sake of encouraging. Um, and at least in discussions of 
mindfulness and contemplative practice, those are often discussed, and whether it's mental kindness or um, traditional mindfulness meditation. Yeah, sure. Um, that's great, actually. Thank you. Uh, so let's pivot to something that might seem really antithetical, which is outrage. And I'm not sure, like, actually how antithetical they are. Um, but this is something that your lab has also studied and I think is probably also really uh, important for our current moment. Sure. Um, so outrage, uh, yeah, it, it can seem in opposition, right? So to the degree that, you know, you, when you think of outrage, you might think of, um, well, there might be a couple, a few different exemplars you might have. You might think of the viral outrage, the hostile tweets and various social media postings. You might also think of physical confrontations like aggression and those kinds of much more physically costly interactions. And so we wrote a paper recently in Trends in Cognitive Sciences. The lead, the lead was my graduate student, Victoria Spring. It was also with Mina Sakara. Basically, the... There, there is a parallel between some of the some of the way we think about outrage and how we think about. So much of the discussion we've been having about empathy is about phenomenon. People decide whether to empathize based upon anticipated costs and benefits. As an approach to understanding emotion, so too that can apply to outrage. And Molly Crockett and others like Julia Babel have been talking about the costs and benefits of outrage in today's climate. Uh, whether that's viral outrage and mob, like viral trolling and mobbing online, uh, to conflict, how do we treat this emotion? Do we think of it as something that's really problematic and insidious in modern culture? Um, and how do we understand the infrastructures of modern culture that support its most insidious forms? To try to combat that. Um, so we read. So uh, we wrote a paper. We basically tried to take kind of a meta-theoretical look at how is moral psychology talking about outrage. And although um, a lot of folks talk about negative emotions like outrage as being functional, so it's important that we punish people because if we don't punish people, research shows that basically you'll get free riding behavior, you'll get deviation from norms. And the idea is that anger and costly punishment can secure cooperative behaviors at the group level can lead to more effective moral life from a functional perspective. Um, and so folks do talk about why things like anger and outrage would be good. And yet much of the discussion in moral psychology and popular culture has been about the worst like instantiations of outrage in viral formats and how it appears to be rational, unjust, disproportional, and so forth. And so in the paper, we juxtapose this characterization of outrage as the destructive emotion we often see within uh, moral psychology and some, also sometimes contemplative circles as well uh, with how it's talked about in intergroup situations. So in intergroup psychology, you often you see studies about outrage as motivating collective action. If you get people to care about an issue um, and generate outrage about it, its very function is to motivate uh, interventions. It's to, to motivate punishment, to motivate uh, someone to feel the need to take action. And so we think that, in short, you know, there, there, there's a juxtaposition there that might inform how we talk about outrage in moral psychology. And the point of the paper is just to highlight these, these, different, these different ways of thinking about outrage to just motivate further discussion about the issue. And uh, <coughs> um, that paper got a response from Molly Crockett and Billy Brady, uh, her postdoc, and they talked about viral outrage and how, look, there's still these negative outcomes of it. You know, are we sure that outrage is gonna have these positive functions? It's still destructive in many cases. How do we think about the relative costs and benefits of whether outrage is good or bad? We responded to their response, uh, which is wonderful. I love those kinds of back and forth. Um, and we deconstructed the question a little bit. And, the, the, and the, the general summary was that 
is asking of whether outrage is good or bad. Is that the right question? Because any emotion can be good or bad in different circumstances. And whether you think it's good or bad will depend upon your vantage point. So if you are part of a group that has been uh, disenfranchised or marginalized for some reason, and outrage will motivate collective action that could actually affect policy change or affect some real social impact in the world, then that's positive. I mean, that can be viewed as very positive. Some who disagree might think that's negative. Um, and in other words, whether we think something is positive or negative or ethical or unethical is kind of, a, it depends upon your vantage point. And rather than cast aspersions on the emotion, whether it's thinking outrage must be destructive or empathy must be irrational and biased. Focus on the motivations and goals of the person wielding that emotion and then go from there. Make that the locus of the debate, not whether it's intrinsically good or bad. Yeah, that's, that's very thought-provoking for me because I tend to be a very like removed, rational human who likes to take steps back from my emotions and observing you know, our political landscape I think we're all a little bit terrified by how easy it is for us to like get really angry and jump to conclusions. Uh, and that's definitely something that we need to take care of. But I think you're absolutely right that that is very specific to this context. So even though it's, it's a definitely a pressing problem now that I think we should probably be addressing in some way or another. Um, I really appreciate this perspective. And I have often thought like, yes, we want to be able to still tap into these, to these resources. Um, but seeing it as so deeply contextually embedded, I think, as you just put it, I, is very, uh, very helpful. And hopefully we can find ways to sort of, you know, shift our context so that we can leverage them for the better. Yeah, and I, I guess I would, I would agree with that. And I would add that, like, of course, there's problematic outrage. Of course, there are situations in which someone acts on outrage in a way that's unwise, that maybe even like blames the wrong target or doesn't appreciate the details of the situation uh, and leads to the wrong conclusion. Of course that can happen. That can happen with empathy, it can happen with reasoning, motivated reasoning. Uh, so we, we're not saying, we're, like, we're not saying outrage is like always constructive or something like that. Like of course it can have either set of consequences. But one of the things that we wrote about in that paper and that I've also mentioned in my work on empathy is that we should avoid what you, what you often see in the anti-empathy arguments is that is this conflation between unwise use of empathy or un, like unbalanced use of empathy with empathy itself. So of course there are people who let themselves empathize so much that they get, emo- they get emotionally dysregulated and that can have problematic psychological health consequences. But that doesn't mean empathy itself is the problem. It, it, it has to do with how you choose to relate to that experience. And so too with outrage. You know, I could, after our, after our podcast chat, I could go online and rage tweet a bunch of things. But I, I know that's not a wise use of my time. And, you know, I, um, I, it's something where you can think about the emotion and how someone who's just trying to live their life, navigate their environment successfully, build that emotion. And there's going to be pe- people who are good at doing that and people who are not as good. At doing that. Uh, and I think we, we just think that's where the debate should happen. Understand the, the full picture of how the emotion is used, motivations and goals, but also instead of within moral psych focusing so much on the negative side of it. Yeah, like negatives can happen. Also incorporate some of the positive constructive elements and maybe cross pollination between moral psychology intergroup relations and other fields that are adjacent like sociology and philosophy could give us a more well-rounded picture. Thank you. I think that's actually a really lovely neat bow uh, with which to end before we sign off. Is there anything left that you would like to share or any kind of resources that you would like to point people to? Um, oh, I think we've covered quite a bit. Uh, the varying scientific and ethical interpretations of empathy. You know, I think, <clears throat> I guess one thing, you mentioned emotions in contrast to reasoning. And, you know, I think that one approach that many in psychology, especially neuroscience, take is that, you know, emotions and cognitions are fundamentally in a world. 
So there's a sense in which it's hard to think of reasoning that's not in some way bound by motivation. And you know, there's plenty of folks uh, in the field that you're familiar with that talk about motivation as fundamental to all forms of cognition. It's like a classic William Jamesian point. Cognition is for action. And so in that perspective, you often see in these debates about empathy and outrage, why can't we just be like cognitive unemotional? And I think that there are ways in which emotions are quite rational. They tell us important features about the world. They tell us the principles we come from. They tell us how to act sometimes. Empathy researchers, anger researchers, outrage researchers, they, they, the emotion is telling you something about your environment has changed in an important way that affects your well-being. And so um, from that perspective, emotions need not be irrational. We can talk about whether people rationally deploy the emotions. We can talk about the rationality of rules and goals and decisions and what to do in given circumstance. But the emotions themselves need not be irrational. They could very well be something we use as smart Okay, cool. Thank you. I really like that perspective a lot. And I am often, I spend actually most of my own work thinking about interplays between thought and feeling and how they affect our spirituality. So that is, that's really useful to me. Um, I'm going to go ahead and let you go. However, uh, for anybody listening, I will put a link to your lab's website if they're interested in just knowing a little bit more about what you've uh, studied or that nice uh, back and forth you had that I think could be really enlightening. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Um, And if anybody listening has any questions, please do get at me uh, and I will do my best to uh, answer them for you. Um, Yeah, so I will be able to tutor be able to direct you to Daryl's work or to my own, you know, where to find me and where to ask questions on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. So thank you all so much for tuning in and I will talk to you next week. 